Aloha, ladies and germ till men. It is Jeremy Vaney, and uh, you're listening to Our Undoing Radio. That's right. Um, you weren't listening to it last week because uh, eh, I took a week off. Figured, eh, who cares, right? It's kind of a trickstery season. And in fact, as I was thinking about this season, I'm thinking it can only end one of two ways, right? I mean, I'm calling it the living mystery season. I guess, living mystery. Um, And of course, the running gag has been that I would talk about the Living Mystery Symposium and riff off of it and all of that, and I never quite get around to doing it. And in that running gag is this thread of the trickster. And so it's obvious to me that this season can only end one of two ways. Either I finally address the Living Mystery Symposium, I finally, in these final two episodes, do that. Or I do a two-part interview with trickster theorist George Hansen. Let's go! Wow, ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor, my pleasure to finally welcome to our undoing radio the one, the only, you've heard about him. He's a man of myth and lore, literally and figuratively. George Hansen. George, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Um, well, first off, I need to apologize to you, uh, believe it or not. It, um, this week, your Peritopia, the first episode that you appeared on Peritopia airs on Friday. Um, and I didn't realize, like, just how much I didn't get the trickster theory. I may not even understand it all now, but I really didn't get it. And I feel like I was hostile in that interview. And so my apologies, George. Oh, Oh, how things have changed. <laughs> well, well, I don't don't remember it, but no, it, it's very difficult to grasp. So, you know, you've grasped, just in my conversations with you, you've grasped it far better than most. No, it is not an easy thing to grasp. Uh, so don't worry about that. Okay. You, it, it, yeah, you don't need any no Well, I rescind my apology. I'll save it for someone else. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, and then the other thing, maybe I need to apologize to Trickster. I feel like the more I listen to people talk to Trickster, uh, talk to Trickster, talk about Trickster, and I, I'm guilty of this too, it almost becomes this thing of um, just superstition. Like any little thing that happens to you, any synchronicity, any weird thing, you just go, oh, Trickster. But that's not really it, is it? Can you? I, I, I'm sure you're sick of defining Trickster, but I don't know, in some brief way, talk about what your Trickster theory is. Okay, it, it's not an easy thing to grasp. First of all, I will say outright, and so it's well recognized, it is an ambiguous concept. Uh, so I give sometimes three definitions. Uh, first of all, uh, it's a character type uh, found in mythology and folklore worldwide. Uh, there are, I think, over a hundred such figures uh, that have been identified. So, uh, you find it, you know, thousands of years ago and in very, what we used to call primitive tribes. So it's been around a long, long time. Now, it's also can be considered a collection of abstract qualities or an archetype. Uh, and the qualities of this being or this figure, disruption, deception, taboo violation, supernatural powers, social marginality, outsiderhood, ambiguity, boundary crossing. So a lot of things that are tend toward ambivalence and ambiguity. That's part of the nature of this uh, 
this creature, whatever it is. Uh, and in a more abstract terms, uh, the trickster uh, can be considered uh, a combination of opposites, especially extreme opposites. And that was formulated uh, by Carl Jung. So, and that's one of the pro approaches that I take on it, but there are a variety of ways of looking at the trickster and trying to understand the trickster. So I don't know if this is sufficient, so ask me another question. Or, or <laughs> well, yeah, it is sufficient. Um, I guess the, the other complementary question to that is, have you seen anything over the years um, that people have been attributing to trickster that isn't it? Like, do people get it wrong in some ways? Well, it's hard to get it completely right or completely wrong. <laughs> so, like, th these these paranormal phenomena have sort of a fleeting quality in many cases. And it's often difficult to determine if a particular instance is really paranormal or it's misperception or someone's playing a trick uh, or it was just simple coincidence. Uh, there are cases where the phenomena seem to grow, in which case the, the one becomes more convinced that there is something paranormal or some kind of trickster energy or intelligence there. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's inherently ambiguous. But if you analyze the real world, even language or physical reality, there's a lot of ambiguity there and ambiguity in human communication. Mm -hmm. So that's where the trickster seems to reside. But there are times when things become more ambiguous. And I think we've talked a little bit before this uh, conversation about now is a trickster era or period. Uh, we have a lot of ambiguity. Who do we believe? Who do we trust in, in the national news? Uh, things are being turned upside down. Uh, what we used to think is, would be right is now considered by many people wrong. So here we have, I think, a real eg exemplary case of the trickster, and we are living in it right now. It's not comfortable, and it's disruptive, and it can be damaging. So there are reasons people want to head, hedge off and limit trickster-type phenomena because it is, in some cases, pathological. Hmm. So, Is there a difference in the way that um, trickster, I don't know, influences or interacts or is with uh, people individually as opposed to a society? Uh, the abstract qualities are generally similar uh, in both the, uh, the collective or the larger society and the individual. You've got ambiguity. You've got deception. A person can be deceived or could be a deceiver, so you have a certain trickster aspect right there. Uh, there's ambiguity in trying to understand what's, what's going on. And in, in these cases, well, well, today, for instance, do we have clear boundaries for our nation. People are saying, well, people can immigrate at our southern border and just come across with no problem. Uh, 
tricksters cross boundaries and they kind of blur boundaries. So we're seeing that as a nation state happen right now. Do we have a, a very easily identified nation? Some people would say, no, we don't, because people can cross the border uh, with impunity. Just as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then how we interpret what's going on today depends on where one starts. For instance, there's recently, you know, there was in the last year, we've had a number of riots and arson and looting in major cities. Uh, Today, and the FBI and the Justice Department had very little to do with that. Sometimes they they intervened, but not too often. Uh, More recently in the news, there are... The, the Justice Department is, is calling attention to domestic terrorism. What they're calling domestic terrorism is uh, parents at PTA meetings uh, uh, voicing real complaints about how their children are being taught. So, again, we see a very well, dramatic Wait, 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 wait. Shift. George, th- that's not what domestic terrorism... These people are no, no, shouting no, no, and not. threatening based on a lie yeah. of some, you know, some uh, yeah. law theory being taught to their three-year-olds or whatever. You know, it's like well, nonsense. Well, it is, it is the critical race theory. Yeah, is highly controversial. And no, the attorney general did issue some kind of statement about domestic using the word domestic terrorism or something close to that. So that those are basically local issues. So what we've got is the establishment intervening in things that are typically local. So hmm. I don't think that's needed. Maybe it is in some cases, but usually you've got local police uh, forces that take care of that. So we're seeing a, a cha- you know wh- where where are the boundaries of law enforcement? You know who takes care of what? So again, we've got an ambiguous situation here. So what, I'm just going to ask what what happens with trickster when liminality is the everyday case and when marginal people are the ones with the power. Okay, uh, fairly quickly, a, a totalitarian condition will or state will be imposed because the society cannot withstand too much liminality, too much change, too much flux. Uh, especially when there are these inversions, when the margins become central. Now, in in centuries past, there would be carnivals where people could let loose, and that would kind of diffuse things. And then after the end of the carnival, things would be put back, and you would have the normal uh, uh, behavior. In, in, in carnivals and Feast of Fools, the, the pauper would become king for a day. The king might be... <laughs> Uh, consider a low-class citizen for a day. So here we don't have that. We don't have that kind of safety valve. So what is particularly dangerous about these kinds of conditions is there will be a call uh, for more more order imposed, and that generally is pretty extreme. So you go from one extreme to another. So that's that's one of the dangers of these kinds of liminal situations. Typically, liminal situations like uh, initiations for young uh, people were pretty extreme uh, rituals, and they would undergo certain ordeals. And during those times, they might be allowed to pillage at will. 
and then at the end of the ritual, the ritual would be closed, and society would go back to its normal order. We don't have that kind of uh, mechanism to take care of that today in, in these uh, these dramatic uh, changes. So it's a dangerous period. People are upset. You know, the level of anxiety is is considerably higher than I've seen it. I think in my lifetime. So, in a sense, is it fair to say that trickster is, um, or at least a trickster type moment in our lives, is a, a sort of chaotic moment that comes about through a pattern? Well, it, it's certainly a chaotic moment. Of what you see is when you've got reversals of hierarchies. Say, one of the things we we see recently is the UFO phenomena has been given enormous attention. In, in the mainstream media, uh, you know, five years ago, it was typically sneered at, you know, it was laughed at, didn't take, wasn't taken seriously. So we see that has changed dramatically. We see the same thing back in the 1960s. There was a huge upsurge in UFO reports. There was what was called a pandemic UFO wave between about 1964 and 68. And if you go to Google Ngram Viewer, you can plot the word UFOs and you will see a big spike there. So we're, we're seeing a s- similar thing. And we saw social unrest back in the late 60s, which was parallel with what we see w- with uh, today. So we have both the UFO phenomena and uh, unrest, political unrest, and they're occurring at the same time. That's not an accident. You can go back 100 years and see much the same thing. Well, and see, this is where, this is where it gets tricky, um, because I, I think there are people who would say, well, of course, because in times of turmoil and uncertainty, we want to look to the skies for the new gods, for the new savior to mm-hmm. come and help us. But, yes. And that may be true, but you're saying also that there is a legit paranormal aspect to this, where it's not just it's not just a matter of people reaching out. Something reaches back or something yes, does. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, there, there, there are, I would argue, are disembodied consciousnesses out there. You could call them spirits or whatever. There seem to be some kind of intelligence, perhaps low level, but that can interact with humanity. And we don't have direct physical access to them. Spirits and gods uh, have been reported for thousands and thousands of years. They're not new. And they do manifest. Our, Our religions are filled with these kinds of stories. And today we kind of push those aside, at least in elite culture and in, you know, in the colleges and universities. Those ideas are not given very much attention. So in that, your view, do you, do you see uh, an, an ecology of spirits or do you see an intelligence that is sort of a puppet master of various masks? Well, it can be something of a puppet master, but uh, I'm not sure it's a master as such. It's out there. And it's playing. Uh, but what its real nature is, it's very difficult to know. Now, religion has typically had ritual associated with it. Rituals historically have been used to channel and hedge off and influence 
paranormal or supernatural forces. That's been one of the most important aspects of religion. That aspect of religion is almost never addressed in college or university courses or in the books uh, and and text accounts of historical religions and what we're, we're dealing with today. That's just pushed aside. It does not fit well with our scientific worldview. But that is what one of the major functions of religion is. So do you think then uh, that archetypes, uh, are other archetypes alive as well, or is it just trickster? Well, no, these are all sort of ambiguous terms to start with. So the trickster is an archetype. You know, in Jungian terms, it's an archetype. Uh, they, these patterns, these archetypes seem to have some kind of independent existence or quasi-independent existence. For instance, it's not just humans that play tricks, but there are animals that play tricks hmm. and deceive. Deceive humans and deceive other animals. So maybe it's somehow built into the fabric of reality somehow. Okay, yeah, because it's tempting to say that there's there's this ecology of some sort of formless awarenesses called archetypes that are symbiotic with us in some way, but it may not be that. Well, I think that that's a good way of putting it. Okay. That's a way we can start to, to think about it anyway. I'm not sure just where that will lead, but it, in our culture today, we have very little understanding of those realms. Um, are you familiar with uh, mythologist Michael Mead? I know I sent you a question about him. But. Uh, I am not. I looked up one of the other people you mentioned, but I did not uh, get around to checking out well, what he I, had written. I guess it's not super important, it's j except just to note that he spent much of his career, or he's still spending his career, trying to sort of steer us away from the hero's journey. Um, oh, and they, okay. Yeah, in, into that of the, the journey of the genius. Um, which I find interesting, and I, I like his work quite a bit. But in terms of approaching the paranormal, does it matter which archetypal pattern we tune our minds with, or do we always just end up at the trickster and find ourselves reacting in the same ways? Well, when you're encountering the para paranormal, the paranormal phenomena are not limited in mythology. You know, many of the gods displayed supernatural powers. So, and in in mythology, these figures sort of blur into one another. They, they will share uh, characteristics, some more than others. Uh, kings typically, uh, and strong leaders certainly have a, a, an amount of charisma. That, is, that charisma inherently involves uh, paranormal or supernatural power. That's very explicit in sociology. Most sociologists don't recognize that, but Max Weber, who did the most important work on charisma, made it very clear that pure charisma involves uh, power, uh, weather control, and telepathy, among other things. And he was very clear about that. But that's largely forgotten in academe today. Hmm. So, so these powers have been recognized for a long time. So humans have certain powers, and some humans seem to have more paranormal or supernatural power than others. Well, that's interesting. I, I'm just wondering, you know, I, I mentioned in terms of paranormal because, you know, it it gets me back to the question that Jeff Ritzman and I had way back in the day, which is, 
and Whitley Strieber too, and I'm sure others, is ufology really a paranormal, you know, not, not ufological in the way that, you know, nuts and bolts aliens, but more of a paranormal um, subject that we have mistaken for aliens and interdimensional beings and all of that. And is it actually more about life and death? Is it guard? And so is there a guardian there? Is there, is there a guardian that is this trickster pattern or this trickster entity, whatever it is, trickster that because we continue to get it wrong, leads us down whatever path we, <laughs> we think is correct to some lunacy to, to our own deterioration sometimes because it's guarding a great secret, or I guess it, it's, I don't know, guiding us away from it by doing a jujitsu move of using our own momentum with whatever we think it's about. Does something like that strike you as a function of this or no? I think there, there's some truth in what you're saying. I think you know, we have to, the UFO phenomenon is particularly interesting in this regard because it is Today, we seem to have more uh, physical data. I'm not sure quite nuts and bolts is quite, quite the right word, but the radar and the visual sightings and the videos and that seem to strongly suggest that there is a real physical aspect to them. Uh, but historically, the whole UFO phenomenon has been surrounded by deception, and you, can't, you couldn't trust what the government uh, told us. Now we've got pilots coming for Navy pilots coming forward and describing what they saw, and it's backed up by pretty good instrumentation. So you have to take the physical aspect somewhat seriously. So if the trickster can manifest in animals as well as humans in some degree, maybe it can animate other aspects of reality. So it's going to be in some of these phenomena may be inherently more problematic this way than others. And UFOs seem to be in that category. I don't know yeah. if that really answers the question. No, it, it well, it does um, in, in that sense. I mean, I, yeah, I agree that you can't, deny the physical aspect of it, but it's physical in service to something, perhaps, uh, that perhaps, it's not what maybe, we think it is. But it may be in service to some external entity, apart from us, and ourselves. So hmm. it may be some kind of collective thing that we are unconsciously aware of, and perhaps are feeding into. We cannot completely separate ourselves from these non-physical beings, perhaps. And we may not understand the connections we have with them. Right. Now, in historically, people have paid a lot of attention to, uh, uh, if not worship, but appease ancestors and honor them. That's largely forgotten in our culture today. But historically, nearly all cultures have had uh, ancestor worship or honor in rituals that were quite regular. We don't do that nearly so often today. So perhaps there is some kind of ancestral aspect to this as well. Yeah, and you know that that's interesting to think about in this way too. You know, as we believe that we are quote unquote evolving when we become technologically more advanced and all of that, um, and we see that as a big deal, you know, do ancestors <laughs> even acknowledge right. that or are they still working mm -hmm. by the old rules? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, 
we're probably not in a very good <laughs> condition to address that today, but we should be aware of historically how that's been and what other cultures have done. We have a lot of hubris in our culture, and maybe part of this is to kind of uh, caution us about thinking, you know, we're on top and we know how things run. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, and that's the other thing, too, is, um, you know, I've, I've dubbed these roughly coming from heart versus coming from brain. So being more of a separate self sense um, as opposed to communal, as opposed to living with nature and in nature, not on nature, as Tiokas and Ghost Horse might say, mm-hmm. um, you know, that mind, which we, again, we aggrandize ourselves and say that that's evolved, that that's civilized and all this. Mm-hmm. What if what if it isn't? I mean, what if all of this stuff is just a reminder that we're actually getting farther and far or, you know, the illusion of getting farther and farther away? We're probably just as far away um, just through the act of trying to be separate from our own nature, uh, that that's a mistake. I mean, could these things ultimately just be telling us we're making a mistake? One could look at it that way, but if humanity is to grow and and we need more numbers, you're going to have to have something of a more rational society than one that's simply mythological. I think it it probably would not work well uh, when you get large societies and with a lot of technology. So when you've got all this technology, that's influencing us in ways we almost certainly do not fully comprehend. In fact, there is transhumanism, and when you bring technology into the human body, which we are doing more and more and more of, perhaps we don't recognize the implications of that. Yeah, well, and also, uh, you know, as far as trickster goes, uh, and the paranormal, it doesn't seem to matter. (laughs) Like, it can, you can have paranormal events happen to you on the computer. You can have those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of UFOs, you know, d- these silly little cat and mouse chasing things that have been going on forever with airplanes is toying with you. Uh, it doesn't matter how fast your jet can go. This thing is going to stay ahead of you. So there is something about just telling us like your technology is irrelevant in some sense. Your technology okay. isn't yeah. grand. Well, it, it could be telling us that, or it could be simply cockroaches coming out for some whatever reason. I, I think John Keel called UFOs cockroaches of the universe. And they may not be fully aware of what, they are, they, what they're doing. They may have detected our nuclear blast or something, got a little excited and are kind of looking around. We, we can suggest, you know, that these are highly intelligent uh, beings. Maybe they're not. Uh, maybe they're more like cockroaches and they heard some explosion or they picked up something telepathically that alarmed them and they're starting to swarm. <laughs> well, I don't know. Do you have, um, I mean, you've looked at this far deeper than anyone I know. I mean, do you have a way that you're leaning? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting back trying to theorize about what's happening and my theory I'm hoping will help explicate and call attention to aspects that other people are not paying attention to Hmm. and offer other uh, suggestions as to what the nature of these phenomena might be. There are a lot of people working on related topics 
but they almost never come together. And academe is very bureaucratized. You've got the humanities, you've got the social sciences, you've got the science and engineering and other fields, and they don't talk to each other very often. And when they do, they're looked down upon. To rise well in academe and in the sciences, you've got to pay attention to what's going on in your field. That does not foster uh, cross fertilization among disciplines. So the way we are set up and the way our organizations are set up tend to limit more creative aspects. These phenomena seem to call for a need for a whole multidisciplinary approach, but that's not very welcome typically in our culture today. And people are not trained or even can think. I, I find psychologists often cannot think sociologically. They, it's just beyond them. And I see this, and you know, I will read literary theory, but I don't know of anyone else in parapsychology who spends some time doing that. Yeah, and right. I've seen another phenomenon amongst um, just some of the scholarly types I know where they tend to write exquisitely about these topics, but to engage them in conversation is like, I don't know, you know, it's like, it's almost as if they come alive in their own private little world while they're writing, but they don't really know what they're saying in real life or they're not as deep with it in real life. Oh, I absolutely agree. Um, in fact, many people who I've worked with in parapsychology are quite uncomfortable around psychics. They don't really like them. Uh, they're uncomfortable, and it shows. I, I, I worked in parapsychology labs for eight years, and I was able to observe this over and over and over again. There is, these phenomena have for many, for thousands of years, have been surrounded by taboos. That should tell us something. And many religions today, mainstream religions, have strictures against dabbling in these areas. That should tell us something, but that's almost never, ever addressed in the more academic literature. In the religious literature, yes, uh, but that's just to the, the masses. The elites don't have to worry about that. So they are missing something, I think, very fundamental. These phenomena have been recognized as dangerous. That's largely forgotten today, but it emerges unconsciously. So there is this reaction against these phenomena and trying to dismiss them to make the world safer. And that's where we end it for now. But we will be back next week with the riveting second half of this interview with George Hansen. And um, also, uh, at the end of that, there will be a kind of a half-hearted surprise announcement. Less something that's going to happen, more... uh, possibility of something in the future. But if you're still hankering for Hansen and you're like, ah, drat, I can't wait. On Friday, as stated in the interview, it will be George Hansen's first appearance on Paratopia. Uh, so tune in for that. You can hear me quizzically befuddled <laughs> by <laughs> what I'm hearing from him. Like, how is this anything? At the same time, you hear Jeff Ritzman, you can all but hear Jeff Ritzman uh, have a light bulb go off in his head. I'm sure that's more of a visual, but for some reason you can almost hear it. Um, 
where it really clicks with him and it's it's a big aha moment for him. And my aha moment with the trickster theory would come later. In any event, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this trickstery season thus far. We will conclude it next Tuesday. Take care, everyone.